Colossians chapter 4. That's page 985 if you are using one of the Pew Bibles. Colossians chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristocharis, my, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among the fellow workers of the, for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness, for I Bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea, in Nympha, and the church in her house. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. You may be seated. Charles Schultz. Charles Schultz was a creator of the comic strip, what? What was it? Peanuts, excellent. And he's a man who could provide a, an insightful uh, commentary on life through his characters. One particular comic that I, I've read includes a conversation between the ever-volatile Lucy and Linus. And Lucy is telling Linus that there's no way that he could ever become a doctor. There's no way he could ever become a doctor because he doesn't love mankind. And if you know anything about Lucy, you kind of wonder, do you love mankind? To which you can just see in this comic that he is getting all uptight about what she just said. To which he responds, go ahead, Donna. I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. It's people I can't stand. And I can imagine there have probably been quite a few times in your life when you found your, yourself agreeing with Linus. Man, I love humanity. Don't get me wrong, but it's the people that drive me up a wall. Sometimes I just can't stand them. They get under my skin. They just kill me. The reality is that people can be extremely challenging. And that does not change when you gather them all together into a body called the church. It doesn't change it one lick. In fact, ministry, by definition, is about people, and that makes it extremely interesting. I once heard Joe, Joe Stoll say this, ministry would be a cakewalk if it wasn't for people. Ministry would be a cakewalk if it wasn't for people. On the other hand, in its finest, most pure moments, it's about amazing people. It's, your life 
probably much like my life, has probably been influenced and defined by certain people more than any other factor. You can kind of look down the road and just say, I remember when, or that person had poured into me. Or looking at Father's Day, hopefully there's been a moment with your own father and you just say, he is a godly man and he has influenced me tremendously. Life on life is a powerful tool in God's hands. The beautiful thing is that God's intervention in our world was through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So God gave a human being. Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, life on life. Further, God gave the, the gifts, gave gifts to the church, and he describes them as people who are apostles, prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So people are very useful to God. But ministry involves people. And therefore, it comes at great risk and great reward. As Paul begins to close this book in Colossians, as like many epistles, it ends with a list of people. We're going to find that in Romans as well, a list of people. And it's always this, this struggle. Of how do we handle lists of people when we are preaching straight from Scripture, when we're not cherry-picking according what, to what we like. So Paul kind of comes to this, and what does Paul do? He identifies some people who are with him. It's a fascinating list, one, one that is filled with useful people, broken people, and absolutely disappointing people. And I think it's dis, it'd be a disservice for us to ignore this section of Scripture. It's useful for us, and it's beautiful. So today, what I want us to do is look at three different categories of people that are in Paul's life that we can see here and ask ourselves, not just looking at these people as sterile folks on the outside and as historical figures, but look at them and say, what category do I fall in here? Are we refreshing? Are we recovering people or are we disappointing so before we get into this, we need to kind of do a little bit of a resetting of the context, remembering where we started off, because we're coming to an end. Next week will be our last sermon in uh, Colossians before we jump into Romans. And here, we need to remember what has been going on in Paul's thinking and his teaching. It's easy to forget what has really been going on behind the scenes that precipitated, that brought about the book to the church in Colossae. So here's a few key data points. First, he is writing from prison or house arrest in Rome. He's there. Secondly, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians were likely written during this time while he is in prison. So he's writing out. He has a lot of time. His heart is thinking about the church. And so he's writing these letters to these churches and specifically about one particular person. He's addressing some concerns that he had heard about the church in Colossae and the surrounding area. If you notice, he made sure that to deliver this letter also to Lystra, right? So he's hearing about what's going on. Reports are coming to Rome. And he's saying, listen, I need, I need you to hear these things. Paul, we also need to know that Paul is in the latter part of his ministry. It's coming to an end. 
He is going to be released after this. He's going to write 1 Timothy. He's going to write the book of Titus. And then he's going to be re-arrested. And then he writes his final letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy. So in verses 7 through 15, we find Paul wrapping up his thoughts and concluding with this real personal section of meaningful people who are important to himself as well as to the church in Colossae. So this section is really, if you could, a, a cutout, a, a window to kind of look into the life of Paul to see who are these people that are important to him. And it's interesting to note the kind of people that are with him. The first type of person that you are going to see are the people who are absolutely refreshing to Paul. Paul has in, uh, numerous companions with him in ministry, and probably the, the number one person that he, he just raves about is Timothy. Timothy is probably uh, considered his most precious one. It is his, his true child in the faith, his, his beloved child, according to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And the list in Colossians includes also some notable people who appear to be very helpful, very useful to Paul. You have Tychicus, Epaphras, Aristocharis, Justice, and Luke. So you got five people, and I kind of want to deal with them. Tychicus, what a name. He is the first person mentioned here, and he's probably the most important because he is responsible for actually delivering this letter to the church in Colossae and to the surrounding areas. He's going to be used as almost a personal envoy on behalf of Paul to deliver the letter and to inform the church about Paul's status. Apparently, he's also carrying the letter to the church in Ephesus as well. Because it says this in Ephesians chapter 6, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. He's going to tell you everything. That I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is from the, the province of Asia and he was apparently a man of great spiritual influence in the churches of that region because he traveled at, even as a delegate with Paul back to Jerusalem with a special offering. So he, he had a voice, he had a presence. People trusted him. And Paul refers him to him even as a messenger in 2 Timothy and in Titus. So verses 7 and 8 gives us some critical information about who this man is. It says that Tychicus was a beloved brother. He was a faithful minister and a fellow servant. I would love to have that on my resume, that I am a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Brother is a term that indicates that they shared a common bond, a common relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's not just like, hey, brother, how you doing? It is, we have a deep connection because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's also called a minister. And just so you know, deacons, those of you who are deacons, the same word, diakonos, is used here. 
the word that we use to translate for the word deacon. So when he is ministering, he is serving the church, a faithful servant of the church, one who is ministering to them. But finally, he indicates that they are co-slaves in Christ, co-slaves of Christ, son doulas. It's a beautiful image if you really look at it. Two brothers bound together because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, and they are serving as co-slaves. They're in tandem together, working for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't get much better to that than that. Can you imagine if everyone had one or two or three or four Tychicuses? That you say, in tandem, we are working together for the sake of the gospel in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in the church, in this lost and broken world. He is my Tychicus. His role was to deliver the letters so that they could know how Paul is really doing. Paul, probably the, the father of their faith, uh, uh, they wanted to know how is Paul doing, but they also needed to be encouraged. No doubt, Paul knew that Tychicus's even personal presence in Colossae would be helpful because the people knew the very character of this man. Sending him was like sending a gift of encouragement. Somebody's knocking at the door. They're wondering, who is it? Open the door. Tychicus. He's a gift. He's an encouragement to us. He's a brother in Christ. He's a faithful minister. He's a co-slave with Paul. And he's an encourager. What a gift. Certain people are like that, aren't they? You look at them and you go, oh, I love this person. They're just their mere presence in the room is just pure encouragement. It's not just that they are they're not popular necessarily. It's because that they are, by their very godliness, they are refreshing to people. It leads us to Epaphras. He's not mentioned next in the text. I'm kind of jumping around. But I list him because of the glowing comments that Paul have to the church about this very man. He's mentioned twice in Colossians, first in chapter 1 and then now in uh, chapter 4. Chapter 1, it says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved, uh, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then here, he's talked about as a servant of Christ Jesus, and he's greeting them, and he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature, fully assured in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard. He has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So he Epaphras was the kind of person who started his work in Colossae while Paul was in Ephesus, and he clearly had a heart for this church. Paul calls him a beloved servant, fellow servant, a faithful minister. He, he, he's one of you. He's one of you. He's come out of you. He, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. He is a fervent prayer warrior. Remember last week? 
fervent prayer warrior, and he's a hard worker. That's, again, a, a beautiful combination. What impresses me about this list that Paul gives is his prayer life for the church. How Epaphras prays. Epaphras would no longer be on the ground in Colossae. He's no longer ministering there, but he has a fervent prayer ministry for this church. They're constantly on his heart and in his mind. Paul even uses this word where in our English language we would hear agony. So he is agonizing in prayer. There's an intense laboring and striving that describes his prayer life for these people. So when Epaphras is praying for the people in Colossae, there is a heaviness, a weightiness for the prayer that he has for these people. It's like he is pleading the very throne room of God, saying, God, I am praying for the ministry. I'm praying for this person. I'm praying for these people. I'm praying that the gospel, the doors would be open, that their mouths would be open, that hearts would be receptive. Lord, I'm praying for them. There's a fervent prayer ministry. The contents of his prayers involved a deep desire to see the church grow to maturity. That's even my prayer for you, that you will grow up. It's not like what you say to your kids, right? Grow up, would you? It's like, no, I desire you to grow up into Christ, to be more mature, to know the things that will lead to spiritual fruit in your lives. I pray for more Epaphrases. Like people in our day, the kind of people where distance doesn't negate a passion for the growth of their people. You know that they are constantly in prayer. For more people who work hard on the ground on their knees, on their knees. People who see spiritual progress of others as a significant enough of a burden to pray. I desire for this family or that family, that dad, that mom, that husband, that wife, that kid. Lord, I pray that they will grow and it's a burden on my heart. Parents, fathers, what a great ministry to desire to see your children grow up to be mature and how it would so deeply affect you that you pray for them fervently. We're going to move on. We see Justice and Aristocharis, and both are described as men of the circumcision, which means they were both Jewish Christians. We know little of Justice other than he was part of Paul's inner, inner circle for a while, and, and we know that he's a, a Jewish convert. But we know a little bit more about Aristocharis. He was a Macedonian from Thessalonica who was at Paul's side during the riots that took place in Ephesus. He, he was right there, side by side. And he was also with Paul during that, that terrible journey from Rome, or to Rome, where he was ultimately, the, the ship was shipwrecked. Who was there by his side? Aristocharis. He traveled with Paul to Rome and was even imprisoned with him there in Rome. We also see Luke. He is called the beloved physician. 
Oh, for me to have a beloved physician now. He is the author of, of both this book and the gospel that carries his name, the book of Luke. And he is likely from the city of Antioch. He is frequently a traveling companion of Paul. There, therefore, that's why in Acts you often see the word we, we. And he's probably taking care of Paul's physical needs. You need to remember that Paul's life was extremely hard. Extremely hard. Remember, he had 40 lashes on five different occasions. He was beaten by rods three times. He was stoned, rocks being thrown at him. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. He had many sleepless nights, and he suffered hunger and thirst time and time again. So think about the companionship and the expertise that this man brought in Paul's life. It was enormous. It was huge. In fact, he was the lone companion near the end of Paul's life. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Only Luke is with me. Only Luke. So we have Tychicus, and we have Paphras, Justice, Aristarchus, and we have Luke. These men are enormously important to Paul. And I think that their admission here into this holy book remind us that ministry partnerships or doing ministry together, when it works, is an absolutely sweet thing. When all things are firing like it's supposed to be, it is a sweet and beautiful, powerful thing. And the reality thing is we need each other. We do. We, every one of us needs each other. And there is something glorious about laboring together with refreshing people, right? Man, everything is firing just like it's supposed to. When I'm getting weak, when I'm getting tired, when I feel beat up, there's another person who comes along who's my encouragement, who binds up my wounds, who, who is there right beside me when nobody else is. That refreshing person. And that is what ministry at its absolute best is like. As I look at this list of men and think about the refreshing people in my life, there are a few common characteristics. These are the things that make them uniquely helpful. Here they are. Let me just shoot off six. Personal involvement. Personal involvement. Refreshing people understand the value of life on life ministry. They see the need to get involved. They, they offer help. They bear the pain. And they are just there with you. They're present. One of their greatest ministry gifts is the ministry of presence. Being available. Simply stated, they just don't let you walk alone. Secondly, there's an investment of time. Refreshing people give of themselves. Sacrificially, they give of themselves. They are willing to adjust their schedules, be inconvenienced, and willing to change their plans. Those are refreshing people. So when a call is given out, this person says, what do I need to do? Yeah, I, I, I've got an amazing night set out, or I've got a great weekend set out, or man, I, I, I had something planned, but... 
I want to be refreshing. How can I come alongside you? They sacrifice for others. They, they see the needs of others as worthy of a costly sacrifice. Refreshing people value people. And they hardly even feel like they're sacrificing. It's almost their DNA, right? I love you. What do you mean? I, yeah, I'll do that for you. Oh, but, you know, that's... You, you had this planned with your, your husband. You had this planned with your wife. You had this. Dude, I love you. If you need this, I will do it. That's not a sacrifice. It's what I do. There's a wholehearted effort that we also see. Refreshing people are, to use Camp Manitoba's term, they're all in. They're all in. They are committed and they, they persevere. They are all in it. It's wholehearted. It's like, uh, well, okay, I'll give you a little bit here. No, they say, what does it take to be with that refreshing source for you? There's a common passion that we also see. They know that there is something really important on the line. And that thing that is really important is not only the health of that person, the encouragement of that person, but ultimately it is the good news of Jesus Christ going out. It is critical. So whatever it takes, we have a common passion for Jesus Christ and for the world to know him. Whatever it takes, it's our common passion. We also see faithfulness. These refreshing people do not quit. They don't quit, especially when times get tough. Difficulty only seems to serve as a way to strengthen their resolve. It's getting tough, but it's worth it. There's more pressure. It's getting tighter, but what do they do? Bring it on. I'm walking alongside. Here's the question, though. Does this list look like you? Can anyone count on you, count on you, to be a refreshment to them. I want, you, I want to call you to see the valuable role of being a refreshment to others. Is this you? The second group of people that we see um, were also useful to Paul but they weren't always that way. It is, it is this recovering people. In fact, there are only two names that have quite a, a story. A, it's a painful history of bad decisions. One of these men had ended his recovery and the other had just started. If you want to hear about them, I... I you need to hear that God still uses broken people, messed up people. First, let's look at Mark. He's called the, he's the cousin of Barnabas, and he's a former, a former companion of Paul. About 14 years earlier in the book of Acts, we, we read that he had lost face with Paul because he refused to go with Paul and refused to go with Barnabas to Antioch in Pisidia. 
He refused to. And it was over Paul, or over Mark, that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement and it caused them to go separate directions. There was a split. But apparently, over time, Mark had proved himself again. Probably because of Barnabas's influence. And Barnabas's name means he's a called the son of encouragement, right? And now he was useful to Paul again. In fact, noticing, notice the passing comments in verses 9 and 10, would you? Concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, do what? Welcome him. Welcome him. It may be that Paul's instructions were about the usefulness of this man. Even though he had, he had made what was likely to be a mistake in the past, God still used him. God used Mark. Then we got Onesimus. There is not enough time to cover everything about Onesimus. Um, he is the chief character behind the writing of the book of Philemon. Maybe that should be a sermon series. Great, great story. So who is he? Well, he's probably a runaway, he was a runaway slave who was probably guilty of stealing from his master. So Onesimus, or Philemon, was Onesimus' master, and he was part of the church at Colossae. And somehow Paul had met Onesimus, the runaway slave who was now converted. And apparently Onesimus was a great help to Paul. But he needed to be sent back to his master, to Philemon, to make things right. To work on restitution and reconciliation, to make all those things right. So it is interesting in verse 9 that Paul says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Onesimus was going to travel with Tychicus to Colossae to deliver this letter and make things right with his owner. I find it encouraging to know that some people close to Paul had some baggage. I know none of us here have baggage. Right? Mark made an immature decision, but he received a second chance. Onesimus had some pretty big skeletons in his closet from his past. And yet both men were part of Paul's inner circle. Both of them. Everyone has a past. Every person has a past, a story. Every one of us has made decisions that we wish that we could call for a do-over, right? Man, if I could just go back in time and fix that thing and not do it again and then start living life. We all have those times. Some probably even have some really unfortunate, stupid, stupid mistakes in the past. Some may be even immoral. Everyone does. But the beauty of the gospel is the fact that Jesus cancels the past. He cancels the past and fills our future with hope. Here's how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Paul had a, a past. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So let me speak directly to some of you who feel like you're kind of in recovery mode, that you've made some mistakes and you wonder, am I really useful? Can God really use me? So there's three things. First of all, critical, preach the gospel to your own heart. Preach the gospel to your own heart. We all have paths. We have all made mistakes. The hope of our lives is not perfection. Even though we really want it, right? But the hope for our lives is not the perfection. It is in the cross of Christ. Preach the gospel to your own heart. Secondly, learn from the past be honest about the past and grow. Some of us, we recognize it, but we're not totally honest and open about our past. The past is an amazing teacher for our future. Most of us would like to whitewash it, cut it off, and say it never appeared. But our past is a, a great teacher for our now and our future. Don't let the past bind you, hold you tightly. Don't let it sink you, but humbly, slowly, but definitely grow into maturity. Third, pray for eventual usefulness. God may very well give you the opportunity to use the mistakes from your past. Pray that it will become, becoming. And, but friends, be patient for that time. Be patient in God's timing. But pray that He will use what has ever happened in the past. Your screw-ups, your mess-ups, your immorality, whatever it is, pray that God will use those things in ministry context to further the gospel. Because the reality is that God uses broken and recovering people for his glory. So embrace the humility that imperfection brings and pray that God in his time will bring beauty from ashes. And here's the final category, disappointing people. This category includes only one name. In Colossians, we find him in verse 14 where Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Now, that verse only tells us that Demas was with Paul and by itself, it has no real significance. It doesn't really tell much of a story other than he was with Paul at that time. But at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, there is a passionate and reflective letter that he writes at the end of his life, kind of just saying, pouring it all out. And at the end of this letter in verses uh, chapter 4, 9, and 10, Paul says this to Timothy. His beloved child, his son in the faith, he says this, do your best to come to me. It's a plead, do your best. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. 
and gone on to Thessalonica. The verses right there is rather direct, isn't it? It, it, Paul says two things about Demas. He's deserted me, and he's in love with this present world. He's deserted me. You can almost hear the pain in the Apostle Paul's voice as, as he writes this. Demon must have, Demas, not demon, Demas must have been a close companion, but he forsake Paul. He, he left him. We don't know what happened here, but it appears that the trial just became too great. It, it looks as though Demas didn't, ha- didn't think suffering with Paul was really worth it. Uh, listen, uh, dude, I'll, I'll hang with you up to this point, but man, this suffering, this pain, this persevering with you in the faith, it is absolutely too much. In other words, he loved something more. Demas loved something more. So here, I, I think that there are two warnings for us. Two things. First is a warning. We all have the potential to become like Demas. The fact that he is listed as a disciple in one book and a deserter in another should be a sober reminder that it could happen to any of us. We can all be demons. But also an encouragement. So the warning is, it could be you. We have that potential. But the encouragement is that some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have been abandoned. Some of you have been deserted. Friends, you're in great company. The Apostle Paul knew what it was like to face betrayal. And the reality is, so did Christ. At his most vulnerable moment, his disciples betrayed him. His disciples left him. They scattered. They were scared. So Jesus knew what it was like. To be betrayed or to be abandoned is one of the most painful things to experience, isn't it? When it happens, you say, I'm not going to get screwed again. Mm-mm. Right now, what am I going to do? I'm building a wall of safety and security with all kinds of broken glass up on the top and a little bit of that really sharp razor wire. There's no way you are coming in Again, it is a painful experience, and all we want to do is protect our heart. Therefore, we need to pray that we, we're never the cause, right? And we need to realize that even the greatest saints, even God himself has experienced rejection. Friends, ministry is about people. The people who are sitting in front of you, behind you, to your left and to your right. It's about people. Sometimes they are extremely disappointing. Sometimes they are in our family and they are just recovering. And sometimes they are absolutely refreshing. Do not underestimate, friends, the power of of being 
a refreshing person. Yes, people can be extremely risky, but they can also be gloriously helpful. Much like an oasis in the desert of despair. So that's what ministry is like. Doing life on life and ministry together. Let's pray.